Titus chapter 2. And uh, here's what I want to start, start with is the name of our church is Cross Life. And uh, it seems like a good time to talk about the name of our church whenever we're about to talk about the body life of a church. So for the last couple of weeks, what I've been preaching about are the biblical leaders. And that's what Titus chapter 1 shows us. What's a biblical elder look like? Um, what a false leaders or false teachers look like? And you and I could sit here and, uh, and we could probably agree as we look across the Christian spectrum of that's definitely a false leader. That's definitely a false teacher. And then there's going to be somewhere we go, I don't know, and it's like a game of chess of I think this one does because they exhibit this or that. And, and then you're like, no, I don't think so. I think that's really well intended. I don't think that that's what we're meant to do. Like, we're going to know the false teachers by their fruit, but I don't think that that's what we need to make our obsession to be. And unfortunately, that's what sometimes we get caught up doing. We get so caught in, well, they're a false teacher, they're a false teacher, they're a false teacher, that we're not looking inwardly for the right teachers and for healthy healthy teachers and leaders. And so remember the criteria, but we've been talking about biblical leadership. What should a biblical leader look like, whether it's me, whether it's at another church down the road? Um, as the church grows and we appoint elders and if the church, the, the church reaches a certain point and then we're going to multiply out, then what kind of person do we want to send? What is it that God wants his church to look like? And so that's been part of what we've been looking at. Now we're going to start looking at the body life. So in other words, today, chapter two is what should this look like? And I'm, I'm like, Mark, I wish more people were here today. I get it. Coronavirus has kind of scattered us. And, and I'm so thankful that everyone's being mindful of that. I'm incredibly thankful for that. But um, we are recording it, and we're going to send it to our members, and they're going to get to to hear what this all says. Um, but there's a way that the church is supposed to look, and the way it's supposed to function from generation to generation, and that does tie into we call ourselves Cross Life. And one of the reasons that we chose the name Cross Life and that we love the name is that there is cross, and then there is life, and we didn't leave them separate, but we brought them together whenever we were at Cross Life Russellville, and, and our thinking was. You can't separate the cross from the life of who we are. Like it always has to be embedded in part of who we are. That's true personally. So in my life, I can't separate the cross from who I am as a Christian. But as a church, the cross must always be proclaimed where we are. So to say cross life is a reminder and was a reminder to us that the cross is always a part of who we are. This that we're going to see in Titus chapter 2 is a, I've just called this message a gospel-shaped community. Because the gospel changes what we look like, how we function, and what we do. Whenever we say uh, gospel, uh, Christ-centered, cross-centered, all those terms are interchangeable. Because whenever we preach the gospel, we're preaching Christ on the cross. And so those terms come in and go out, and and they shift in our culture, especially church culture. To be a gospel-centered church is like a a buzzword now. And so um, that's who we are. So we're cross-life. We're going to look at Titus, but here's what I want to say at the beginning. Like, let's hit pause on everything that we know about churches, because I'm looking around and and we've all been in churches. We know what that looks like. And a true evaluation of it really to me is the evangelical church in modern Christianity has become one of the most segregated places that you can walk into. You walk into the door, we send our kids over here especially if they're younger. And so like K-5 through through 5, we're going to send them over here to this wing. And then if they're like 6 to 12 or 6 to 10, 11, they're going to go here. And then we got a place for our tweens and a place for our teens. 
If you're young and married, then you go over here. If you don't have kids, if you're young, married with kids, then you need to go over here because you're all on the same walk of life. College students go over here. Um, but if you're young, career age, then you go over here. Sometimes we have college and career together. And then husbands and wives can go together. Or if they would like, then we're going to send the men over here and the women over here. And then men, if you're this age, you go here. I mean, we, we really have subcategorized and segregated ourselves to where you walk into a church, and if we're not careful, we're not bringing people together, we're dispersing them apart. We build youth buildings that are on one side of campus and have one type of worship while everybody else gathers here, and then we send the kids out for their own children's worship so that mom and dad can rest. And I get it, there's a convenience there, but there's also a weakness there. So that's, that's usually what I've experienced as you walk in the door, and I'm saying this, I'm, I was a youth pastor at First Baptist Moralton, and so we had our youth building. It was actually up on the third floor, and we called it the attic. And on Wednesday nights, there would be about 70 kids who would come up there. And then we would have fun. We'd play a, a horrible game called Tear Apart, where they link arms and legs, and like the boys are, are kind of shouldered up together in this tight ring, and then the girls get behind them, and they're literally trying to rip the ring apart. And then we would reverse it. It was awesome. We loved it. Um, but we would play those fun games, and then I would give them – to the best of my ability, like a, a biblical message, and then we would sing and we'd have fun and then we would go. But that was for the youth, right? I was a youth pastor. That's who I pastored. That's what I did. I was on staff, but I didn't really pastor the people, right? So whenever people would come in, the, the youth would go up here. The little ones would go in here. The, the elementary would go here. And then we would age grade them on Bible school or Bible studies. And I'm not saying that's all bad, I think what it really comes down to is what are we really trying to accomplish when we do it? If we're trying to accomplish convenience and preference, then it's wrong. If we're trying to adequately equip each of those age groups, then it's absolutely right. So it's what's the motive? What are we trying to do? That's why, that's why we have children's right now, right? The little ones, they're, they're not going to get the gospel whenever they're crawling around and putting a Lego, in, you know, like a mega block in their mouth. They're not going to understand the gospel that age. We're, we're providing childcare right there so that parents can, can hear and be equipped. But over here in this other room, whenever they're the older group, they're hearing the gospel on their level, and we're teaching them about Christ on their level in a way that they can give. But we also have those kids here while we're singing and while we're praying because they need to learn the songs of the saints. They, if Jackson is 11. He is a believer. He needs to be with other believers to see what believers do and what a believers love. And then my other kids, I want them to know that this is what mom and dad do. This is what we love. We don't just talk about church. This is the church. And they're out here with us. So a lot of it is so that they can catch what we're doing. They're going to see what we love and they begin to love what we love. That's a, actually a big part of it. But then we're also realistic. There's no way that they're going to sit there patiently and quietly and, and glean what they need to um, in 45 minutes. So we try to be very mindful. And that's our dynamic. That's why we do what we do. So the church should be where believers come together. And when they come together, this is what it looks like. Titus chapter 2. Paul writes to Titus and he says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he's about to lay it out. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to, their own, um, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And now he's shifting to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. and Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Let's pray. Lord God, teach us to tremble at your word. Something that is, that is a very practical text for us today, Lord. May we be mindful that this is what you've called us to to be a people unlike any other people in a world that is not our home, or that though we are aliens in this world, we know that, we are, that, that this is the furthest we will ever be from you. We are coming home. This is momentary. And in this moment, we must live in a way that glorifies you, especially as a church when we come together. Lord, I pray that you help me to have clear, clear thought, clear communication, not eloquent speech, Lord. I don't want to be a great speaker, Lord. I just... I want to be a clear teacher. And so, Lord, help me to do that and help us to endure this, this cooler morning as we gather outside. Lord, help us to focus on you and you alone for your glory, for you are worthy. Amen. Okay, so let's push into some of this. First off, I don't feel like an old man. However, I look back here at Jeff and I feel quite a bit older. Um, young spry young man back here and I look in the mirror and there's gray hair coming in the side which doesn't bother me too much but then there's gray hair coming in the beard but I'm older than Jeff Um, but then I look at Trent and Trent is older than me and so some of this older and younger is very subjective okay so keep that in mind but I think that we whenever we say older men we kind of have this mindset of hey here's what an older man is but I think that Jeff would probably think of a different bracket of older men than I would. And I say that because I remember like going from the transition whenever you're filling out a form online and you're like, are you in the 26 to 29 range? And you're like, yep. And now like, I keep scrolling. And, I'm, and 40's not that old now that I'm closer to it. But I remember thinking, man, one day I'm going to be 40. That's a long time. And now I'm like, oh, man, that's like three years not there's anything wrong with 40 i'm just saying like it's not as far away as i thought it's really young 40 is young really really young so but it but it didn't used to feel that young you know what so there's some subjectivity here so what am i saying i'm saying maybe there is some strength in that subjectivity maybe there's some strengthen the objectivity of it. In other words, we know what we mean whenever we say someone who's older in the church and someone who's younger in the church, but at the same time, my point is this, 
is that um, as I'm listening right now about the older men, I have to realize that there are younger men in the church. And so I become the older man. This is a, this applies to me, right? So as I'm looking at the teens in our church, I realize that I need to be an example to them. So, so here it is twofold. Uh, we're going to move quickly through this. So older men, what do you need to know? According to Scripture, whenever the church comes together, all the generations come together. That's one of the big things we have to notice is that the, that the church seems to function with the generations. Uh, we call it multi-generational, intergenerational, but, but it's not like you have the older church, the younger church, and this church and that church. We have the church. And in that context, older men must be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. In other words, you know what it means? Is that we just talked about the biblical elders and leaders of the church. The older men in the church, though they might not be named deacons or elders, must set the example of what it means to be dignified in the faith. So if we go down into those, and and we could, but it would take a, a lot of time, that's really the big takeaway. That they show themselves to be mature believers, and they're good examples. And there's confidence whenever we see them that I can go to them for wisdom and they're going to give it. That's what that's telling us. Look at the older women. Older women likewise. Okay, so watch that word likewise. Likewise keeps showing up. So likewise seems to kind of compound, right? So whatever we see likewise, it's like not a separate group, but older women, hey, you also, so just like all this, you also need to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And now here's the transition. And so train the young women. So the older women have this valuable ministry within the church. That first he lays out the negative. He says, hey, don't do this. Right? Don't do this. And we already know who the Cretans were. The Cretans, we learned um, last week, they are, they're liars. They're lazy. They cared about themselves. And so he's looking at these older women and he says, basically, okay, you've got too much time on your hand. Quit drinking wine and quit talking about people. That's what's slandering and the drinking. So there seems to be something cultural there. He says, instead of doing those things, here's what you should do. Teach what's good and train these young women. Y'all, I can't tell you how thankful I am for older men and women who poured into mine and Chas's life whenever we were a young couple who, who still give me advice. I was told uh, by Brother Bill one time, we were in the office, I was at First Baptist Church, youth pastor, and he and I are talking, he's drinking his coffee, and he would just sit there and he would just talk to us. And he told me one day, he said, the wife sets the emotional atmosphere of the house. I was like, oh, that's profound. He's like, it's true, isn't it? The wife sets the emotional atmosphere of the house. And the men are like, yeah, see, see? So, and then he said, and then he held up his finger, he goes, but it's up to the male, to the man, to make sure that the house is set in the right order. In other words, the wife sets the emotional atmosphere of the house, but it's the man who has set such a loving environment that that emotion is happy and is joyful. And so he was just talking, just expounding on the wisdom. Um, wind keeps blowing this, so I'm trying to find a better place to, to set it so that it doesn't blow all the pages and they're there when I need them. So in other words, what's the idea? The older women are pouring into the younger women. That's, that's a vital ministry. And he spent some time on that. But I do want to clarify, I do believe that women can hold positions in ministry. I don't think that this discounts them. I think what he's saying is, hey, don't discount the, the ministry that you have, older women, of pouring into these younger women. They need you. 
They need your wisdom. They need to know how to love a husband, how to submit to a husband, how to raise their kids. I'm telling you, I don't know how my wife gets it all done. Like I've tried sometimes to be like, no, dear, you go and enjoy your day. And she walks out of the house and I'm hitting my knees in prayer. I'm like, Lord, I need wisdom and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and loving mercy. Like, and I walk in and she's just juggling it all. Like she's got everything going on. I think that that's Paul's point. It's not, you can't do anything else, but it's, you don't understand how rich and vital your ministry is. And so he's asking the older women to pour into the younger women. Um, from what I see in scripture, I don't believe that the women can be elders, um, that they're not to be over the men. And I, I can support that scripturally, but they can absolutely serve in ministry. But what is their heart? According to this, their heart, the older women's heart is to raise up godly young women who will then be godly older women who are poor into godly younger women. And so to cultivate that, that's what we see right there. Slander real quick. I just love what one commentator said. Slander is whenever we're talking about someone behind somebody else's back. The women are not the only ones, by the way, who are guilty of this. Man, don't you know some, some men in the church who can slander with the best of them? But he's reminding the women in this context, this evidently was something that the Cretan women struggled with. Here's what I want to say about slander. That it just makes sense that where God has brought unity that Satan would plant that seed of discord, which would cause disunity. So that's why we have to watch slander. Why is it that we're speaking? Okay, younger generation, younger women, here you go. You are to be trained up by the older women, verses 4 and 5, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. And then look at that last part. Why do all these things? So that the word of God may not be reviled. So there's a ministry in the young women. There's an impact and a power and a weight in the young women that causes a world to look and to accept or revile the Word of God. That's crazy. Like, I don't think that way. I'm just like, I'm doing life. Like, I'm just trying to make it through here. I want to clarify this. Can women have jobs outside of the home? Because this says working at home. Yes, absolutely. Read the heart of this passage. So... So look at this column real quick. There's, there's all these little bricks, and it's good to look at each word in each passage, you know, like uh, be kind, submissive to husband, caring for kids. Like each one is a block, but, but you don't walk out here and go, that's a nice brick. What you come out is you see the structure of the column. So this passage, what is this whole passage? All these bricks coming together, all these words and phrases to love the husband and children, be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands. So it's word of God may not be reviled. You know what the heart of the young godly woman is? To care for her husband and her kids, to care for the home primarily, not career, in other words, not career and culture, but home. So yes, absolutely she can have a job outside of the home. I believe that. But whenever her care and affection becomes for outside of the home instead of within the home, then that's whenever it's gotten reversed. So I look at all those and I pull it together. Look at what's at stake. You know, an unbelieving world is watching godly marriages and godly people coming together to see what kind of, what kind of king is this if these are his people. Like, What does it look like whenever there's a holy, eternal, godly king on the throne and he's unmovable that's what you and I represent to an unbelieving world. Like they want to see what his servants act like to understand who he is. So that's what I think it means. So that the word of God may not be reviled. Younger men, and they get off, right? 
Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Only one thing. <laughs> we get a pass. Oh my goodness, no. Like, likewise, so all of these other things, just like all of that, be self-controlled. You know what young men struggle with? Self-control. A lot of it. For everything that's not said there, self-control in their personality, self-control in their indulgences, in their respect, in their wives, with their wives and their kids. That self-control inundates everything with their sins, with their speech. Whenever he says young men have self-control, he's not saying, because you got it all together, he's saying what you most vitally need is self-control because it affects everything. And self-control is one of the chief fruits of the Spirit. So it's not a, you guys got it together, it's a, you know what you really need? Young men, you know what we really need? To learn self-control and restraint. And then he shifts over to Titus, to the pastor, and he shifts to the slaves or the bondservants. So I'll touch on slaves and bondservants here in a second. To Titus, he says, to the pastors, this is what you should expect of your pastor, that he shows himself, shows a respect to be a model of good works, and in teachings, right, that's the emphasis for the, the pastor, the elder, in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Can't tell you how many good teachers with great doctrine don't teach with sound speech. But we must hold to sound speech because our integrity and our dignity point to our king. So there's a, great, there's a great pastor who I'm not going to mention here, had a great platform. He has since, um, through poor decisions, kind of lost that platform and has been humbled. But I would listen to this pastor preach, and I had friends who loved this pastor, had a podcast, and, and he would speak at conferences, has books. They loved this pastor. And every time I would hear him, there was no sound speech. He didn't mind cussing to make a point in a sermon just for that shock effect. He didn't mind crossing the line just to really get that shock and awe um, aspect. So if someone's like, oh, oh, didn't, yeah, I like that. That's just keeping it real. That pastor has since, uh, we use the term, fallen from grace. And he's, he's got a smaller platform, but he's much humbler and much more authentic and genuine. And God's done a great work there. So God restores. But, but teachers need to do it with integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Because this says opponents will come, but whenever they come... You should teach in such a way that whenever they accuse you of anything, they are put to shame. Okay, so slaves. Why does he talk about slaves and why doesn't he say, why doesn't he abolish slavery? Real quick, in in this context, slavery was widespread. And slavery was different than what we think of as the evil institution that was corrupted and and abused. And so we got to think of it a little bit differently, but it's more like this. Okay, so that's just a side note. Here's really what's going on in the New Testament. The New Testament is not condoning slavery, but what Paul in his letters is writing, he's clarifying that that a Christian should respond in this context, not to condone slavery, but to say that slavery is such an institution that has to change from within. So you can't stop the institution effectively, so start to change the hearts. And so he talks to masters and to slaves, and he starts to show there's unity in Christ and, and so undermine that institution. We can, though, likely bring it back to an employee and employer. So if you have a job, okay, that's probably the best way you could think about those. But think of the way he's talking to slaves and he says, be submissive to your own masters in everything. 
You are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything you may, watch this, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So he says to these slaves, yeah, you are to be in submission to them in everything, but do it genuinely. Right? Because Christ became a slave to our sin for us. Like he became that enslavement so that we could be free. And he says this affects everything. And then... In case none of those apply to you, in case you're like, I'm not young, I'm not old, um, you know, I don't know where I fit. This one I just put, all the saints of all walks for all time, okay? So this applies to absolutely all Christians, if none of those apply. But by the way, they should have applied. Remind them to be, here you go, number one, submissive to rulers and authorities. You don't have to like what they say and do. We don't have to necessarily subscribe to it. And there is a balance of how much do we submit and how much do we not. Do we not? Um, but in general, we are to be submissive and obedient and mindful of all rulers and authorities. Why? Because Scripture teaches that God appoints and places those rulers and authorities where and why He wants to. We don't always understand it, but we need to be submissive. But any time that it combats with our faith and our faith is compromised, that's whenever we do not have to submit. But otherwise, if our faith is not in jeopardy or in line or risk, then absolutely. I cannot tell you how many times I was um, approached with, at the beginning of the coronavirus, and churches starting to reopen. Well, they can't make us wear masks, can they? You wouldn't wear a mask, would you? And I'm like, it doesn't compromise my faith, and so I'm okay with it. Like, I don't like it. I'm not, I don't like having that, you know, on my face, but, but that doesn't compromise my faith, whereas some were seeing it as an attack on faith. Now, we have seen very aggressive attacks on faith through the coronavirus out in California, um, and that's, that's its own situation. That was a time whenever it was okay for John MacArthur to not submit to rulers and authorities because faith was on the line. It combated absolutely and directly. So there's a good balance there. Okay, be, so be, be obedient is what all saints are supposed to do. To whom, for whom, why? Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. Why? Because God has prepared these good works is what Ephesians 2.10 tells us. And this, speak evil of no one. What about your worst enemy? What about the person who just slammed you? Speak evil of no one. Why? Because God will take care of us is where we place our hope. Avoid quarreling and be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. So we're all covered here, right? That's what... That's what church life should look like. And uh, I'm checking my time real quick. Um, Perfect. That's what the church should look like. The question is, is that what churches look like? The churches really look like older women pouring into younger women and older men pouring into younger men. And then remember our psalm at the very beginning, Psalm 145, one generation shall commend your works to another generation. There's like this reciprocal effect where all of the people are together and they're all communicating and they're all together because they're all believers under one king because of one Christ for one purpose to be the one church that glorifies the one God forever and ever. Like that's the point. And so we have to be careful, church, whenever we come together of beginning to segregate ourselves out. Because yes, it is comfortable. It's quote natural for us. But God has done an unnatural thing and he has made us a community. Think about the people as we sit right here on this porch together. What in the world do you and I or did we have in common 
before Christ came into our lives. Look at, look at how scattered we would be because of our jobs, because of life circumstances, because of different states that we would have been living in. But God, through his work on the cross and, 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 uh, and raising Christ up on the cross and then burying him and then resurrecting him again, like he's made a whole new people and he's brought them together and he's like, this will be fun. All these random people, let's put them together and there's going to be unity. It's crazy whenever we actually step back that the only reason our lives intersect is because of the work that God did in our lives. And he says, because I've done this, here's how you live together. Body life looks like Titus 2. Okay, but don't miss Titus 3, 2. So go to Titus 3, 2, and it says this. Now, this is, this is one of Paul's great sentences. That's a long sentence, by the way. You try to find the period to the end of that sentence, Everything else is real short, young men. Be, you know, exhibit self, self-control, period. And then you get this one. There's a whole lot going on here. And he really, he's doing a lot of deep theology, a lot of good theology. And we're going to apply that. Titus 3.2 says, For the grace of God has appeared. See that word for? It means Because. So he just said all of this, show perfect courtesy towards all people like older women, younger women, older men, younger men, young women with young men, bond servants. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. That's why. So I call this part like point two is it's the seed and the soil of community, the gospel. Like if the gospel's not at the center of who we are as a church right now, then nothing else is going to matter or work. We can run programs and bring in people all we want, but we won't be a church until the gospel is a soil. And then if the gospel is a soil, then all those other things will happen. They just will. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Right? We just heard all that. As we wait for our blessed hope, This is what you and I wait for. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What is all that? I mean, 3-2, if I were going to write something in my Bible, that's the gospel. Like we say the gospel quite a bit. But what is that the story of? That God has given himself to redeem us from all the lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Like that's the church. Those are Christians. Those are the saints. That's what we hold to. But all that we are as a church is because of Titus 3.2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So whenever we say that we want to be a Titus 2 church, that's, that's thrown around quite a bit, to be a Titus 2 church, where one generation pours into another generation, we also need to be a Titus 1 church where biblical elders and leadership are cultivating the soil of that. And what, what's that soil that all of this community takes place in? The gospel's got to be there. If the gospel's not preached, then we're not nurturing the body of Christ as we're supposed to. What you and I need is not a list of three to five things to do better. What you and I need is to be constantly reminded that yes, we have absolutely nothing in and of ourselves, but God being rich in mercy and grace has redeemed us. That's what I needed this morning whenever I woke up because I'm sitting there thinking about church and I'm sitting there thinking about all of us coming together and and delivering the word and I'm just reminded, man, the goodness of our God. Man, like how, how could we not want to 
to sing and, and listen to that. All right, so I want to I wanna go here because I'm an English major and I'm a nerd. There's a verb in the ESV, for the grace of God has appeared. That word has appeared, the Greek word, is where we get our word epiphany right now. So if I were to say it in the Greek, it would sound like epiphany. And if I say it in Arkansan American, then it sounds like epiphany because it's the same word. All right, an epiphany means to become visible and make an appearance. And so whenever he says the grace of God has appeared, the context of that conveys this image of grace suddenly breaking into our moral darkness. Like that's the impact. So for the grace of God has suddenly burst into our moral darkness, into our sin nature, and it is shining this light of grace. And because of that grace, we are radically different today. So it'd be kind of like if we went in there to the living room and, and, and all the, the lights were turned off and we were able to get a pitch black. We're not talking about a candle and that's the grace of God illuminating. Like the, the, the meaning conveyed here is that we're in there, it's pitch dark, and then at the right moment we turn on every light and there are floodlights and it's blinding. That's the impact of the gospel coming into our lives. We are changed radically. And so what that, what that makes me think of is there's this phrase, and uh, I always kind of fell in love with the phrase. Um, this, what, he said it this way. This is the expulsive effect of a new affection. I was, I was like, man, that's good because I'm an English major and I like how words play. But if I were to expel someone from school, I'm going to kick them out of school, right? So to this expulsive effect is like I'm, I'm driving something out. Whenever we have a new affection, whenever Christ comes into our life, it absolutely drives out everything else. We want Titus 2, but Titus 2 is not natural to us, but we want it because there's this new affection that you love God, I love God. How do we love God alongside one another? So the leaders have to come along from Titus 1 and say, here's how we do life together in this way. Does that make sense? Okay, okay. I won't belabor it. Um, Y'all, the gospel is the soil of the church. That's where membership comes in. So I'm going to do a quick caveat real quick. Membership matters to me. It should matter to the church. Churches that do not have like quote unquote membership, I always just want to know why. To which they want to look at me and say, well, why do you want membership? Which is a fair question. Membership shows how we belong to God and how we belong to one another. Membership says that I'm accountable to you and for you, and you're accountable to me and for me. We're accountable to and for one another. So membership is a way of covenanting and and committing to be with one another to say, hey, Titus 2 is a reality, and whenever we covenant within the church, we know who belongs to us and who doesn't belong to us. There are a lot of other people that I would love to pour into, but to be quite honest, I'm not their pastor. Their pastor is supposed to pour into them, guide them, protect them. I'm supposed to shepherd those who are under me and alongside me. So membership matters. But we need to think about member. You're not becoming a member to this nebulous uh, idea, to this piece of paper that you signed. We covenant together and we agree. It's like a, it's a partnership. But you're saying, hey, I'm accountable to Mark, but I'm also accountable for Mark because he's a... He's a young man, so I'm, I'm accountable to him and I'm accountable for him. We don't just come in as individual members, but we come in as the body. 
Right? That's the image that we get in Corinthians where each part of the body comes together. And so the, the fingernail is relying upon the finger, which is relying upon the blood source that's coming from the heart. Like it's still that image. And that's what membership's about. It's saying, hey, we're part of that body and we're going to do our part not only to be healthy, but to keep it healthy. That's why membership matters to me. Because it's an accountability where you're saying, Ricky, I'm there for you. I'm there to be accountable to you. And I'm saying I'm to be accountable to you. I'm a member of the church. I'm not a pastor, like just a pastor of the church. I'm a member, so I'm accountable to you and for you. So, um, man, there's so much we could preach here. One more thing that you need to understand here with Titus 2 is this, that the church is for believers. That's the connection of it all. Everyone he's writing to, as Paul is writing to Titus, and everyone he's talking about, he's writing about believers. And he's writing about believers who are the church. Why am I making this distinction? Because it's really easy for us to shift the identity of the church. And this is why this is another distinctive of cross life. We believe in what we call regenerative church membership. We believe that all believers have been regenerated. Like to be a member of the church, you're a believer. That's a fancy way of saying it, right? So the church is for believers. Now, can non-believers come in? Absolutely. We welcome them. But we're not going to change what we do just to bring in non-believers. But whenever you look at the biblical identity of the church, it's made up of believers, and he's instructing believers how they're to live with other believers and what the church should be like. That changes how we preach. That changes how we sing. It changes what programs we offer. It changes whether we have a... Well, it changes how we spend our money. So keep that in mind. It's a subtext. It's implied that God's people are God's church, and he's writing to his church. We're to go out to do missions and to reach other people. And they are welcome to come in, but we won't compromise who we are just to attract people in. Those of you who've been around church for a while and you've read enough books, there's a thing called an attractional church model. In other words, you have programs and events to bring the community to you, and then you try to win them to Christ. I would much rather just go serve the community, whether it's a neighborhood outreach or a missions thing. Like I'd rather do that, not with the motive of growing the church. God grows the church. We preach the word. God grows believers. Like there's a kind of a countercultural, counter church cultural thing there. But that's why we don't do an attractional church model. Um, we don't want to gather the world in here. We want to gather the saints. And as the saints come together, we look and we behave and we think differently. All right, let me conclude. What's, a, what's the effect of, of doing all this? Um, the effect of of everybody fulfilling their role in the in the biblical model of a church and preaching the gospel and relying on the gospel what's the effect of all that it's community god has shaped a community and i have several verses but i'm just going to give you the the main points of what happens when we do community this way i'm going to give you the brief version there will be unity and blessing within the church you can write down psalm 133 and look at that how blessed it is when brothers dwell together in unity it is like the oil that flows down even the oil, um, it flows down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. And it's, the Lord has commanded a blessing there, life forevermore. So when we live in community in this way, there will be unity and blessing. There will be reciprocal praise from one generation to another. You see this in Psalm 145. So you can write that down, Psalm 145. 
verses four through seven, but one generation will commend your works to another. So it's not like a, it's not like a waterfall where the older pour into the younger, but the younger are also pouring into the older. And so there's a unique effect. Number three, when we do community this way, we train up one another even from a young age. And I wrote down Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, where it talks about you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your might, and your soul, and teach these diligently to your children, keep them on your doorposts. So in other words, everyone's talking about the gospel. There's a number, it's 70%. 70% in the the church model we have right now in our culture, 70% of the students will graduate not just from school, but they will graduate from the, from the church. They will leave church whenever they graduate, 70% of them. And 35% might come back whenever they have kids. The model that we have in our American churches right now, where we bring the kids over here and they have a great time and they're with their friends and they get this, and it doesn't work. Or it works to entertain for a while, but it doesn't actually raise up disciples. 70% of them will leave. We need a different kind of model. We need a Titus 2 where they are ingrained and brought into the life of the church as a vital piece of it. Fourth, what happens when we do community this way? We may be encouraged in our unique identity as God's people. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And it goes on. But I'll just have you look at 1 Peter 2, 9. When we live in community this way, we are encouraged that we are not crazy, in other words, in this world. Our affections are not like everyone else's, and that's okay. We need one another to remind each other of that. And the, this one, uh, whenever we do community this way, we, Titus 2.10, we adorn the doctrines of Christ. We put them on as we do clothes, and an unbelieving world sees that. And then the last point, and then we'll pray. When we do community this way, whenever we have a gospel-shaped community, we realize that the way that the church exists alongside one another ultimately reveals to an unbelieving world what kind of king we serve. The way that you and I interact, the way that we care for one another, the way that we reach out to one another, the way that we bear one another's burdens, the way that we show affection and honor towards one another, the way that all these things come together, an unbelieving world looks in and says, that's something different. I want to be a part of his kingdom and not this one. That's what Titus 2 is about. What does his kingdom on this earth look like? It looks like that. Let's pray. Lord God, help me to to fulfill the role of an older man, an older male as you've shown in Titus 2, and pour into the younger. And Lord, help me to to be the younger and exhibit self-control and honor towards the older. Lord, help me to to live in such a way that I'm not only going to church, but I'm there for the church. That I'm accountable to them and I'm accountable for them, not as a pastor of the church, but as a a co-member alongside them. But you have given us a cloud of witnesses so that we could live out your kingdom work here in this dark world. But you are the king of this kingdom and we want to live in such a way that honors you. Lord, thank you that we're able to gather this morning and hear this. I pray for those who will hear it through the the recording because they couldn't be with us this morning. But Lord, may we live to be your people and not our own. May we live for your glory and not ourselves. And may we always gather to glory or to always gather to, to look into the gospel and bring you glory. Lord, we love you. Amen.